This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and it is my great good fortune to be hanging out with a pal who also happens to be an acclaimed poet and now has a memoir called The Black Period, Hafiza Augustus Geter. Oh my God, I've missed you. How are you? How are things? Can we talk about your book? <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. It's so good to see you. I'm so excited to be here. I want to see if we can get through this show without swearing. I mean... <laughs> Um, I'm going to follow your lead. The first time you slip up, I'm going, I'm taking it down with you. Oh no. You know what? Your dad, we got to keep your dad in mind. We got to keep your dad in mind. We're going to, we're going to not, it's just when I see you, we, we swear a lot because we're very colorful in our language. (laughs) There's a lot to swear about. There's a lot to swear about. Yeah, there is, except for your very beautiful book. I knew you were working on this. I mean, we've talked about it as you've been sort of working on it. The poetry collection came out two years ago. When two years ago, okay. we started talking about it before I'd really written a word of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the Black Period. The Black Period. It's also got your dad's art, and we're going to come back to your dad's art. But I want to start with the title, because I think people, you have a great, great explanation for this title. But I think there might be some people who are looking at this going, hmm, who is this woman? What is this book? And what does the title mean? Yeah. So, you know, the title has several meanings for, um, you know, one of the things my father's a visual artist and he loves uh, Goya and he loves Goya's black paintings. They're essentially the dark heart of man, you know, Mm -hmm. it looks like it looks like someone's like interior demons come to life and it's mainly done in blacks. See, my father loved this. I could never quite figure out why he loves this so much, but for him, he his thing as a painter, he looked at Goya's black paintings and he saw all the skill to be able to render in blacks, you mm-hmm. know? And the book has a, a little over 60 images. There are two color inserts and the rest of them are black and white. And I think, you know, for my father, he's very much both a painter and like a, and like someone who like uses like uh, charcoal and pencil and written does both like color and black and white. And so, you know, I love this idea that all the things that, you know, the idea of black could do, right? Because right. like I always joke around with my friends, just like, you know, there's that scene from the Malcolm X with Denzel Washington where he's reading mm-hmm. the dictionary and he's just yep. like, black means, means black means me. You know, how language transfers that like blackness is always used describes such a darkness such it's there's usually not anything positive associated with it and so for my father to look at this like you know what is arguably a very difficult set of paintings and see beauty I thought like that's like you know really seeing that and like learning to draw alongside my father and like one of the things we do like when I was a kid he would literally just make us make me like shade from like mm-hmm. the lightest point to the darkest to, to see it, how gradual I could do it you know and this idea that like light needs the shadows and it's all part of it, you know, um, I thought it was just like always a beautiful idea. And then also attached to it is, you know, this book is has a, like a preoccupation with time. And I think that, you know, people of color have a preoccupation of time because we live in and around generations, you know, like so we like, you know, we literally have our grandparents living with us. Um, but, and they're always talking about history, you know, because like, like slavery really wasn't that long ago. Right. Um, that 
this idea of essentially how could I explore like, you know, the political aspects of time, but also just like the way, you know, time operates in both like our memories, our grief, and also for this idea of like how we understand history. I think like the 1619 Project has been like a perfect example of just like time as a political notion of where one starts Mm -hmm. a beginning. And so I really started to think about what has been marked by my adulthood. You think of I think one of the parts I talk about in the introduction is it's no longer, you know, the age of innocence or the age of Aquarius, you know, it's like the age of oppressions It's the age of climate change It's the age of wars, you know, um, and looking at like, but like, what else has there been, you know, and what else have we been doing inside of all of that and looking at uh, the way, like, like, what are all the ways it's possible to measure time? The way you move around in time and the way you move around in place and the way you move around from idea to idea is really profound. I mean, you're talking about disability, you're talking about trauma, you're talking about family history, you're talking about your own personal history. There is so much happening in this book, but the way it flows is really excellent. So I know you and I were talking about this before it became the book that it is now. But when you sat down, Un-American's Done, Wesleyan University Press has put it out. It is very cool. Everyone should read it. But this book, The Black Period, how did we get here? I mean, that's that's exactly what the book is trying to figure out, though, is how did we (laughs) get here, right? And, and who gets to declare where here is, right? And, but in terms of like the actual, like physically, how did we get here? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I also work in publishing. Um, when I was writing this book, I was a editor and now I'm a literary agent. But, um, you know, one of the things you see writing from like, not just like a Black experience, but like, but like also a Black queer experience in like writing from like multiple identities, it's always, okay, like, which one are you going to pick to write about? Yeah. Because- there's no way that the world has the attention span to understand how it makes us live, which is something that I can't agree with, right? And because that also leaves the only options for marginalized writers to be alienation in the world, right. which is not a thing, right? That's not actually the only options. Like, you know, it's a false option. Um, and the idea that, like, um, that if we are able to live and, like, navigate through all these multiple planes, like, this is what people of color do all the time on so many levels, even like when you think about on a language level, that's code switching, right? Um, and we do that like in rooms as well. And so I wanted to think like, um, how could I also make something that was mimetic to the experience of life? You know, like yeah. you're, when you're like standing in line at the checkout store, so many things can like, you know, time goes in and out, you know, like we don't mm-hmm. live on a straight line. And so I wanted to like create the experience of just, how do we connect all these dots, you know? And mm-hmm. also one of the, I think one of the reasons that it's often said that like, okay, we have to pick one thing to write about. Like, okay, we can write about blackness. We can write about queerness. Sometimes we're allowed to like interweave those things together, but then you can't add ableism and disability on that. And you can't add Islamophobia on that. And you can't add grief on that. And it's just like, but why not, you know? And for me, it's just like, I trust my reader. I wanted to try to get as much of it like on the page as possible. How much of like the human experience, like when it's beyond just whiteness, like, you know, can someone experience? And so I try to 
really try to do that. And because at the end of the day, the world is just narrative and the stories we tell. And I think so few of us actually get the stories we deserve. And so, you know, as I think like part of the craft aspect and the and just like the storytelling aspect is this idea of like literally revising you know um of just like having to revise one's life one's origin story like you know my my mom was a muslim nigerian woman my father is a black man who's born in alabama like like during like jim crow and like george wallace they wove their stories like together to raise us and you know my mother didn't move to the u.s until like she had until after she had us, we moved here when I was three and my sister was six. And, you know, we settled in Akron, Ohio, and we spent like most of our childhood celebrating Kwanzaa. And Kwanzaa takes a is in the book and this idea of looking at it as just like this Pan-African way to write a new origin story. Mm-hmm. Like in like, you know, the 90s when the people who were kind of like the adults were leading us in in these stories and like trying to revise the stories, like thinking about where they came from, we're 30 years outside of civil rights, you know? And like my, my father's coming from a time when, you know, he wasn't legally allowed to go to integrated schools until until like like high school. Like he was, I think like I did the math, like the last enslaved person died like when he was in his like his preteens or teenage years. So mm-hmm. to be, he was alive at the same time someone who was born into slavery was was, like was alive you know and yeah I think all of that kind of like wove into this idea of like you know what it means to revise a story to get to something like truer and it's not just the story revision though because you talk about being in Europe when you were in college and there's this line that I love And just for setup, I mean, you're looking at a lot of art, you're connecting with this art, your dad has shown you a whole way to look at the architecture and art of cathedrals, and you're standing there, and I'm quoting you, a world where art was more than just art, it was memory, and it was documentation. And that, so much of that memory and documentation gets taken away if you're an immigrant. It gets taken away if you're living in exile within a country. I mean, there are exile, you don't have to physically leave a place to be living in exile. And I really want to talk about that because so many different pieces of this book pull from that very idea that memory and documentation are the basis of the creative piece of us, whether that's the visual arts or Mm -hmm. words, whether that's poetry or or narrative writing. So- I want to sit with that for a second, because here you are, and you're talking about your mom coming to the States. She's Nigerian. She's Muslim. Your dad from Alabama, raised Christian. Catholic, actually. You went to Catholic school, right? Yeah, I went to Catholic school. My father was raised Southern Baptist. Oh, okay. All right. So you've got all of these different traditions whirling around. And obviously, your mother is not really open about her practice. I mean, she's not hiding it from you guys, but she's also not open about it. And it's a very different point in America's history. And your parents are are of a generation, though, where they're not telling the kids everything. It's not like they're sitting you down at the dinner table and saying, let's talk about all of the things. Yeah, you're an adult. You try to pile all those stories in every time. (laughs) So you've got to dig around and you've got to figure out how to tell these stories and you've got to find them in order to tell them. So we're standing on the lip of the Grand Canyon when this book opens, which was not what I was expecting. Okay, straight up. I'm like, we're in the Grand Canyon. 
it, the thing is, it happened right before the pandemic. Like we were literally like me and my wife and uh, I'm asking Camille and her husband, we were literally about to like go on a road trip across the Southwest, you know, mm-hmm. my, my wife's parents live in Phoenix um, and we just landed there. We're like, and we'd driven to the Grand Canyon. COVID was just really starting to, it had been on the news, but like things were just starting to close. And, you know, we're staying in the Grand Canyon and people, you know, like it's a tourist attraction, like, mm-hmm. but to the extreme in which like literally the whole world is also there, you know, and like just someone coughs and we're just like, and by the time we're just like, we need to leave and go back home, like the Navajo Nation was closed, you know, uh, which is like also an interesting um, moment to be standing at what is like for, you know, geological purposes like a place where you can see the beginning of time as time is stopping all around us and in ways that we would you know only really begin to understand this is where you start to weave in this narrative of disability mm-hmm. this is where you start to weave in ideas about what is stolen versus what is lost mm-hmm. I mean, this is, I can see the poet's brain turning, but also this is you as cultural critic and sitting down and really doing the research. I mean, there's, there is some, there are some court cases in here that I honestly didn't know had happened until I'd read the book. So you're starting, obviously you're starting with the image, you're starting with family, you're starting with all of the things that you have relative access to besides your parents being very silent about stuff in the past and whatnot. But now you've got to layer in the stuff that goes beyond the personal. And I want to know sort of what that process was like for you, because, I mean, here you are excavating stuff, and we're going to get to some tricky stuff, Um, but you're excavating your own life, your parents' lives, and your mother died when you were 19, but she wasn't telling you everything prior to that. So... Now you're chasing other people's stories on top of it. So what's happening here? I think it really tied to the idea of like, you know, where does a history start? And this idea that like we don't, while we each have our own individual histories, all our histories are shared, right? right. And at the end of the day that um, how do we work together as people in order for each like in order to achieve like shared liberation right mm-hmm. and, and acknowledging while while i'm acknowledging and like living directly in the legacy of what of transatlantic slavery and what has mm-hmm. happened to black people that is also a part of like you know the the legacy of indigenous genocide right yep. uh, and what indigenous and native people are dealing with and, and you know, in the very, you know, current time. And the idea that, okay, I, th- I you know, this country is a, is essentially a history told by leaving out most history. Like that is what the, the, the fight about CRT is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just like who, like, just like, it's about where history gets to start and who gets to tell it. Right. right. Um, and, and, and as, as a black person, as a queer person, like, it's so easy to under you look at all these histories that are told as though we don't exist and like haven't created half of them and you see how untrustworthy it is and the last thing i wanted to do was create another untrustworthy history you know and i know that you know we were like though like we were kidnapped to this to this country we were not the first people here you know and like this idea that i'm we're standing at the grand canyon which is like this 
this immensely beautiful place. Um, and it wasn't till in, you know, you, you can just go there, you go there, you, you pay your money and you just get to look at something that is like actually physically, it's just like incomprehensible, especially how beautiful it is. And like what you're actually looking at in terms of just like science, but then, you know, later when I was just like, you know, looking up stuff about the Grand Canyon, I come across Havasupai Elementary School, which is this, which they live in Supai Village at the bottom of, uh, the, like that's where it is, the bottom of the Grand Canyon. It's where the Havasupai tribe uh, lives. And they have, you know, since they're, since they've come, since like their origins in this country, they have occupied the Grand Canyon, the base, as well as like the plateaus. But of course, they've lost so much of their homes. Um, but this like they are literally the first people documented um, mm-hmm. in like North America. Also, the school down there is also one of the most under resourced. Right. right. Um, and children are being arrested um, for doing for things like pulling a computer cord out of the back of a monitor. Um, I mean, it's just like completely outrageous stuff. And it's it's like it's a product of like their ADHD or other coping like or other issues around like complex trauma. And so really looking at like, what is it like, what does it actually look like to survive this country? And to just looking at like the amount of the amount of work, you know, the Vasapai uh, tribe does in combination with the Native American Disability Law Center to they put together like a landmark case, mm-hmm. which they, they sued the federal government on behalf of students with disability, which like which includes complex trauma. Because like, you know, complex trauma, it impacts the way a child learns. And mm-hmm. students with disabilities were being limited to like three, like three hours of instruction a week. Sometimes they just like had the janitor come teach, right? Because mm-hmm. they are, because they're not getting the resources that they need. Um, and it's just like, it's like, it's absolutely like, it's atrocious, right? Like, so this is happening at the base of the the Grand Canyon. And at the top of it, what we see is a gorgeous view. The incongruity of that is just like trying to, you know, I think that as a black person, you know, we are we are taught by our families and our parents to deal with the contradictions of this country. Um, but like that is like, and that is one of those contradictions I, I was really trying to just get my head around, you know? And like they won their case, like using precedent that I talk about from a school in Compton, but looking at this idea of it's easy to think like like the world is doomed, we're never going to win because like we that's also what the algorithm shows us, right? Mm-hmm. But in with the Havasupai Elementary case and this school in Compton that like sued for school, students with disabilities, it has it has the possibility of changing um, education for every child in the nation, right? And that and that is done by like, if you if you want to talk about like a you know a, like a, a goliath tail right mm-hmm. it gets a goliath like we have like the poorest school district in the country and compton which is we know how that is portrayed as like the site of like pure violence who mm-hmm. take on the federal government and and win you know um and thinking of like you know the power that is actually in community the compton students did not know that Hav- the havasify students would need need their the fight that they started, mm-hmm. but they did like that is how in community that we can actually create change, you know. Um, and so I think it's trying to see like looking at the Grand Canyon. There's just so much to see. Just in literal 
like both like just the beauty of the landscape, the foliage, the layers of mm-hmm. time, but then there is all of that happening around us as well. And so really, but the thing is like, there's one thing that like I've paid to see and there's one thing I'm conditioned to see. And that is the actual national park of it, you know, which is e- even as that is a, a theft, you know? And so trying to be like, okay, like, what if I just let a little more into my vision? What else do I see? Yeah. And I think it's really important to focus on the hope piece too. I mean, these are communities fighting on behalf of their children. You know, I realize we're probably giving people an idea that this is a very intense book, but there's a lot of joy in this book. Part of that comes from your dad's art. I love your dad's work and I'm desperate to meet your dad. I'm so desperate to meet (laughs) your dad. Yeah, he's a character. And I want to talk though about balancing the art because some of your dad's stuff is light and you can see sort of an instant joy to it. And some of it is very intense and, and very specific. I mean, the man has a range. He's very cool. He does have a range. But I want to talk yeah. about balancing your words with your dad's images. I mean, obviously he's taught you how to draw. He's raised you into an adult. Like, he's your dad. But you do both share a very specific artistic vision and yet you also bring what you bring i think that in terms of balancing it it was kind of just intuitive i mean like growing up like there was just art everywhere art stacked against the walls like rooms we weren't using that turned into like more storage for his art you know and so there i can literally track years of my life Mm -hmm. by what he was making you know like right. i can literally track years of my life by the way his styles have changed i know which house we lived in by looking at a painting mm-hmm. you know i know who was there and so much of the people that he painted were you know family friends or just like you know people's kids just like it was the it was the community you know you know it was such a obvious part of my life that you know when I started writing the book, I always, I, I never, it, and it, there was, there's never an iteration of it that existed without his images, you mm-hmm. know, okay. uh, because it didn't feel like it was possible to, t- I would, it, how to tell that true story. And for mm-hmm. people who haven't um, read it yet, like the, he also did the cover, um, the cover images his, and you can mm-hmm. see a little signature and which is my favorite parts. The fun part about being together, just being like, okay, wow, we, like, I really am my father's daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing how it like the way it works and how so much our of our of our arts are in conversation right. but yeah I think I think that one of the things that I love about my dad's work is that like though it covers you know it can cover serious topics like climate change politics like violence against black people there's also it's also full of joy you know mm-hmm. like my father grew up in the black church right there's also this thing about like growing up seeing people catch the spirit seeing people like lose themselves into a feeling but like and, and having that losing be be only possible in a community setting mm-hmm. you know i think like my father's from a time when that I think this is still true, but even more so that like you could not survive as a black person without community, you know? Right. Um, and so his work is really, I think like tied to that. And, you know, his favorite, one of his favorite stories to tell me about like when he went to go get his MFA from Ohio university, like he came back and he had like drawn some bottles or something, showed it to 
my grandmother and she was just like okay um like it was just like a still life and she's just like well why are you doing it if it's not helping anybody you know Mm -hmm. and like and he said that like after that he never looked at the work is the same that what he needed what he was doing had to be helping somebody you know and Mm -hmm. I think he really like instilled that in me and I think that one of the things this book is really just trying to do is the same thing that my father tries to do with like his art is like understand is to be able to be like, what am I looking at? Because so much of this book is just me trying to figure out like, what am I looking at? We have to look at what is in front of us. We need the context. And that's the beauty of books. And that's the thing I've always appreciated about books is the fact that they give us context. And we're not yeah. just grabbing an idea that's sort of floating around. I mean, we need to figure out, and I love the idea that your dad creates art specifically to help, and that it's not just a still life, that it's not, because art to me, whether it's visual art or film or, or writing or poetry or whatever, art to me is an act of connection. And it's, des- yeah. it's meant to be an act of connection. Whether or not you're building a community as a result of that, I mean, community is great if you can get that. But even if you connect with just one person, because honestly, what's the point of doing yeah. it? We we yeah, all need yeah. to connect. And and that to me is something that we can't ever lose sight of. And but that honesty, that piece where it's like we have to look at the ugly stuff in order to understand how great the good stuff is. I mean, it's complicated. It's really complicated. And you talk about your own shame, and I'm quoting you for a second because I really like to do this apparently. <laughs> you talk about your shame being a ghost story you know, this book is also trying to unpack shame, like, like, um, what is it, you know, and I think one of the lines I have in the book is, is that, like, you know, in many ways, like, in my experience as a Black person who has been, though not born, but raised most of her life in America is, or is that, like, America, like, shame is America testing how long its history can last inside Mm -hmm. certain people, right, and so this idea of, you know, like any shame around, like shame that we might have around, like had around queerness, like that is part of a patri- heterosexual patriarchal type of like a system of oppression, or like this idea of even trying to understand like like shame around ableism, right, and disability, mm-hmm. um, and shame around like having just like understanding myself as someone with a disability. You start to read. And then the moment you just take, you take one step back and then you take another and you take another, and then, you know, you end up in a place where you, where you're learning that, that so much of ableism is tied to this idea of who has the body to produce in capitalism. Mm-hmm. And that like ableism is part of, you know, what helped contribute to the enslavement of black people and then the genocide of indigenous people because black people were seen to have bodies made to work and Mm -hmm. indigenous people were seen as 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 not you know so they were expendable in capitalism right who is the master all of this is is serving Mm -hmm. in terms of actually freeing yourself um like that that is how you actually free yourself from these systems because i think bill hooks talks about like um how shame is a tool of patriarchy um, because so often shame produces paralysis, right? And because you can't act, you can't defend yourself, you can't defend others, right? Um, and so this idea of like, where does shame come from? And how does one get rid of it? You know, and like, also, 
who is the shame in service of? And it kept coming back to one culprit, you know, America. You have a line from the New Yorker critic Perul Segal that I really, I've been dying to ask you this question. Sure. Because you ask it in the book, and I'm not sure either you or I have a specific answer yet, but I really love this question. What would it look like to emerge from erasure? And what is the verb the answer demands? So, I mean, this is one of the things we've been talking about throughout this conversation is how do you put yourself back in the narrative? How do you put yourself into the history? So if you're taking yourself out of erasure, what is that verb? I think the way the book like resolves it is, you know, is in this work of revision, right? To emerge from erasure, you have to have something to write in, you know? So like, so whose story are you going to write in? Because the dominant story is this, you know, one given to us by white supremacy. And is that the story you're going to write? Or like, because white supremacy tries to convince you that that's the only story that exists. But, you know, as a Black person, you know, just like the existence of, you know, Black people shows me that it is not. And because, you know, this this mania over CRT is just like... The things I know about Black people, I did not learn about in school, you know, that we have always had to educate ourselves, right? And so when I was, when I was investigating, you know, Pearl's question of like, how, like, what does it look like to emerge from erasure? You know, I was very lucky in the fact that my parents had given me a different story, you know, that I could go back for. And I think that the thing that I liked so much about Parle's question is the 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 verb, right? Like, look, it demands that you do something that a map be drawn, you know? How do you find a past that you can use, you know? Um, because there is there is no like one story of the past. There are many like narratives of the past. It always depends on like who is telling, who has right. the power to declare what a fact is, you know? Um, this was back when facts meant more than they do now. Who has the power to architect the story you right. will will wear in your life? Yeah, I mean, for me, I kept coming back to connecting as a verb for everything you were trying to do in this book and everything that writers in general are trying to do. I think I don't need my exact details showing up. I mean, if I need my exact details, well, John Cheever and John Updike have written quite a lot of that stuff, and I can go back to it at any moment and relive my childhood. <laughs> Um, I use them for handbooks to understand my dad and his friends. Um, no, seriously, I did. <laughs> oh, my God. But, I mean, at the same time, I don't need the details to align perfectly with my own. I need, like, the idea that I can, and you should see what I did to your galley, my friend, that I can find the truth of my own life in your childhood in Ohio or your trips back to Nigeria or you went to Gambia at one point, right? Your yeah. brother-in-law's is from Gambia. Oh, yeah. And I've never met your parents. And I'm just like, oh, I understand these parents. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you have an immigrant parent, right? So my yeah. mother came here to go to college and never left. But I mean, you, there's certain stuff where you're like, yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I mean, America will raise an eyebrow at many of us. And we're kind of like, hi. <laughs> yeah, you and I can laugh about it to a certain extent, because there's a lot of shared experience. Um, but at the same time, we need to acknowledge the stuff that isn't right. And we need to yeah. acknowledge the stuff that's busted. Because if we don't acknowledge that stuff, then we're not going to be able to make any progress. 
but we're also not necessarily going to connect in a really true and honest way. And I just think you have to look at what's in front of you. Yeah. (laughs) And sometimes it's messy and sometimes it's, I mean, climate change, it's all of this kind of stuff. And that does also bring me to the two brothers that you dedicated the book to. And I do want to bring this up because again, they are not necessarily members of your family. And yet it makes so much sense that these are the brothers you dedicated the black period to. So can we just bring that up for a second? Cause it goes back to 2012 and it, and it involves climate change and involves the city and yeah, we're on the cusp of the 10th anniversary of Hurricane Sandy. And so in the book, um, I've got a chapter um, called This Could Still Happen Anywhere. And it's about Glenda Moore, who she and her husband uh, lived in Staten Island during Hurricane Sandy. And her husband is was an Irish immigrant and sanitation worker. Um, Glenda Moore is a black woman. And, you know, he's at work. You know, he's like he was called into work by the government and Glenda Moore is trying to evacuate with her two and four-year-old sons, uh, Brandon and Connor Moore, and their car gets overtaken by the, by the flood. And she is trying to get her neighbors to let her in her and her sons and no one will let her in. And she and her sons cling to a tree for hours. and. This, and her sons, both of her sons get washed away in the mm-hmm. storm and they they die and they're found, you know, a few yards apart from each other a few days later. But like if but one of the things that really struck me is there's this news clip of they're talking to one of her neighbors, mm-hmm. this white guy. And they like, you know, so much of it where they're insisting that like they all thought it was a black man at the door. Like it was sound like a much bigger, blacker man, you know, and there's, that's so complex, you know, this idea that like in a hurricane, it's just like, who's allowed to be afraid? Who's allowed to need help? You know, even in a hurricane, they like, you know, people are thinking that black people are out there to loot, you know? I mean, like thinking about that, she was out there for 12 hours, like thinking about how long that is to be out there and like having her children just be, you know, just be like the state sanctioned murder essentially because you think that like there that action doesn't exist in a vacuum all of history had to has had to happen this way for her neighbors to to refuse to open the door for this woman who's like five foot three and like not that that even matters you know and just let these two children be washed away and the neighbor that they're interviewing he's being interviewed by a white newscaster and he then and like there's this little argument back and forth for the newscaster just like no it was a mother and then and then the guy is just like well that's too bad she shouldn't have been out there and he absolves himself you know and like what do you do with that grief what do you do with that rage and you know like and how do you make sense of that you know and just like all and it's connected to so much, you know, the epigraph of that chapter comes from or Cornelius Edie, uh, um, uh, what is it? Brutal imagination, the book and the, um, which is about like Susan Smith who drowned her children and made up a mythical black man who done it, you know? And it's just like, you know, in this, in hurricane Sandy, none, like none of her neighbors would open the door for a black man, but in the aftermath, 
they all they all reach for that black this imaginary black man to justify their actions you know and that contradiction you know it's just like the idea that black people just like don't walk around this country and just like how we can how we can manage to do things in addition to our rage is is you know is incredible when you think about all the things that are happening and this idea that like um that like so like just like all the things that have to happen to black people for this for this cruelty and this like by to happen or by and all of this is happening by people who would declare themselves good people and good neighbors you know but she doesn't get to be a glendra moore doesn't get to be a neighbor you know she's a black woman who could be a dangerous black man and there's like the politics of you know just you know of the misgendering and like just like the, the masculineness of like of, of all that you know it's just there's just so complicated um but this idea of looking you know when you're talking about earlier documentation like she's lost her two sons and like lost isn't even the right verb you know because it's just like it's like this mysteriously happened you know um but it's like what do i what do we owe glenda and it is easy to be like you know, the neighbors being like, well, that's a shame. She shouldn't have been out there. And just like, but this idea of that, like, I would rather not look away because Black people, you know, we are raised in the, in the tradition of witness and testimony. And at the very least, like, that we owe her our witness and I will give, and, and, and I owe her my testimony, you know, and that even if, if, even if there is a way to, to absolve myself of that, I wouldn't, you know? Because there is something that like, you know, Black people, especially we know what it is to grieve together and the importance of, you know, of just like having a community to help like hold your grief. And I remember when I when I read about it shortly after Hurricane Sandy, this thing that barely affected me at all in the same city as as her, even though she's a stranger, I don't feel it as a stranger. And a lot of that has to do with the way, you know, Black people are like can be the way like oppression connects us you know but that's also what i'm trying to do especially with that chapter that we we don't i don't like we don't all know what it is to have each other's experiences but one thing that is for sure is america is killing us all you know it is literally killing us all whether it be it's just killing some of us like faster and you know with like in far more direct ways you know with black people you know beyond police shooting thinking about like what's happening and Jackson, Mississippi with water, you know, so black, like communities of color and black communities don't have water. Right. Um, and think about what's happening with like climate change. You see, especially young people, they are protesting because, you know, their futures are being stolen from them. America is killing us also, even if we don't have the experiences in common. One of the things that the book is trying to do by weaving all these things together is that like, um, is that we do have our traumatizer in common. Right. Um, because most people aren't aren't Jeff Bezos. Right. America only loves billionaires. Right? Like, it really does. It just like, you know, for in my in my poetry book on America in the title poem, I, I kind of like end on like this, like something about this country belongs to no one I love. And someone like was trying to be like, I don't agree with that. I'm just like, but I don't know any billionaires. And like, you know, this country like that, like but the, but some people are convinced this country cares about them. But um, but I'm just like, no, this like everything is in service of capitalism, you know, and and that the people who protect the protect the system of power, they are as expendable 
as the rest of us. You're wrestling with big ideas and unpleasant moments and and unpleasant shared moments. Climate change hits all of us. Yeah. It really does. But I want to talk about the art of the sentences, because if you're not focusing on the art as you're wrestling with all of these big ideas, you're going to get lost. As the writer, you are going to get lost. So we need to talk about you as a poet. We need to talk about you as a memoirist, what you're willing to put on the page. You've talked about revision throughout this conversation. But I want to talk about the art. I want to talk about some of the writers who helped make you Hafiza Augustus Geter. I did nothing but read (laughs) the entire time I was writing this. Like when I wasn't reading books, I was, I spent an enormous amount of time on JSTOR. JSTOR, I love JSTOR. And I just had an app that would read aloud PDFs to me. And so like literally every waking moment, I was doing some type of research. And a lot of research I did in this, for this book was on joy and mm-hmm. on celebration yeah. um, and on community because you know at the end of because yes we're going through all of these things but there's there's a reason the color the cover is bright and celebratory yeah. because that's also where where the book goes you know mm-hmm. and where the journey goes is that you know I have a chapter that's like you know talking about some of like the protests that has happened over the last few years um, around Black Lives Matter and Mm -hmm. just around Black people protesting, whether it is, you know, for voting access or, you know, or just like safety from the police. And so there was this, uh, someone put together, I think, um, a Google doc where they had a, they just had clips of dancing from all the protests that has occurred all over the country Mm -hmm. um which is just like just so amazing and the thing I loved about that is just how much it just reminds me of childhood when my parents would have friends over and everyone would be like talking loud and you're just like wait are they fighting are they organizing or are they laughing you know even though the work of survival is difficult there's joy that comes from doing it together um and I love that you go to a protest, you see a black marching band, you see someone twerking. It's like a cross between between like Freaknik and Afropunk and like a Kwanzaa celebration. Um, but I think to your question of some of the writers, I th- I read widely, I think, and also like podcasts. I listened to uh, Incredible. I, I think I listened to like a whole bunch of So Processing Oh, I love I, that show. Yeah, I, I started. Love I just read, that show. <laughs> I, I listened to it a few times. The Whoopi episode is mm-hmm. my favorite. Okay, and and I, I also use that. Like, I use everything from like text to podcast for ideas of you know s- structure be, because the way still processing weaves together through politics, culture, all of the things like it's a craft lesson um I spent a lot of time with you know Angela Davis I spent a lot of time with um Maren Kaba because also this book is about the personal work of abolition too yep. right how do we dismantle our carceral systems because shame is a carceral system mm-hmm. um like preventing yourself from grieving in the ways you need to that's a carceral system mm-hmm. um and so like how does one abolish those within within yourself because uh, carceral systems try to make you 
hungry for punishment, right? So it creates a violent world. So I spent a whole lot of time with that. A lot of it was just like pure research about yeah. like about like the indigenous tribes mm-hmm. and the people that I'm writing about. Um, I wrote like, uh, let's see, I read The Undying by Ann Boyer, mm-hmm. um, Hanif's uh, um, Little Devil in America. Little Devil in America. Sarah Broom's Yellow House is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Just like on a both just like an historical level, on mm-hmm. a personal level, on a craft level. Yep. The book that I have kind of like an acknowledgement center uh, um, section. I think there may be like maybe I can't remember how many are in there. I think maybe I distilled it down to a few hundred, but there are about like of just like my primary sources. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I was literally just a cookie monster <laughs> just eating up as much as much as i could oh um braiding sweetgrass yep by robin wall kimmer amazing i read jeff chang like with his history of, of just like music rap music mm-hmm. i literally read i read like um mia mingus i think is incredible like mm-hmm. uh writer and disability activist alice wong whose uh memoir just came out i think yep. the tiger in other words you covered the world i covered the world <laughs> this is what i appreciate but this is what i appreciate about your brain and while i was reading i mean obviously i know you and, and i'm reading this book though and every single moment that i'm in this is a complete delight because between the language or the ideas that you're putting in front of me and I can't sort of turn away from because I don't want to. But again, it's the context. It's we can't make different decisions if we don't know what is sitting in front of us. Yeah, And that's the thing that I just really want to keep stressing with this book is there is your dad's art is fantastic. You do throw in some very funny stories about you as a tiny person and maybe some choices you could have made differently. But as a fellow tiny person who could have made different choices, I mean... Hi. Yeah. This is partially why you and I get along so well. It's like, hey, we survived some bad choices we made. We did. We did. Uh, you know, and and more importantly, you know what? You and I just made it through a podcast taping, and neither of us swore. <laughs> that we that we. Think. How did that happen? You and I made that it we through. We, I feel like there there's there could be a swear in there. No, no, oh, no, no. We want to add. Yeah, yeah. Border and Rule by Harsha Walia okay. is one of the most brilliant books I have ever read. And I think that she is essentially, she's showing how borders are manufactured and how like, mm-hmm. you know, the border crisis is the manufacturer of, of uh, capitalism and how it all mixes with climate change. But I think that what really was influential to me about writing this book, you know, she talks about... I'm pretty sure it's in this book where she's talking about, you know, it's easy to be overwhelmed, right? Because there are like, when you think about like the tentacles of oppression, Mm -hmm. it's just like an octopus with a a million, million arms, right? But her point is that like, because and they're all connected, right? They're all connected to this like one head that that they're all in service of. But Harsha Wally points out that because all those tentacles are connected, that if you do your thing, I do my thing. It all like it all it all goes towards the head of that monster, right? Mm-hmm. And so you don't have to like solve it all because mm-hmm. it all gets connected. Um, and that like and that is actually pretty liberating, you know. And I think making sure I think that's why I, like 
people hate Twitter. I'm just like, Twitter is an algorithm and you control who you follow. And like, I follow thinkers and I follow activists. Mm -hmm. And because as much as like the world is falling apart, there are so many people like, you know, who are fighting for freedom, fighting for justice and doing it in community. Mm -hmm. That is actually like, it's that this that this book and doing the research, it made me like, you know, a hardcore optimist um, in terms of like the world. Yeah. Cause here's the thing. I mean, you're giving us a blueprint for showing up. That is pretty cool. And that's not something that every book can do and more books than not can do that, but you've done a pretty cool thing and I'm slightly biased cause you're a pal, but also the book is really, it is terrific. The black period is out now. I really hope that people understand that there is a lot of joy and a lot of just genuine love in this book, but yeah, it's two sides of the same coin. Yeah, and there's a lot of pop culture. Coin. I cover Lauren Hill, the Olympics. Mm-hmm. I cover Kwanzaa. Um, I cover Do- Dolly the Sheep gets a mention. True, true, <laughs> like, true. The 90s were wild. We cloned a sheep. <laughs> oh, we were barbarians. But that's another conversation to have. You understand. That's a totally different conversation. Totally different conversation. <laughs> I adore you. We'll figure out when the next book. Oh, and actually... Before I let you go, what is next? I'm working on a nonfiction, an ex nonfiction book. Um, it's literally called Being Around, and it's uh-huh. about being around, like, you know, that subset of hanging yeah. out. Yeah. Um, and it's about essentially those like little moments that make us who we are. Um, and then I am slogging my way through learning to write fiction, and I'm writing a novel about borders and Pangea. Pangea okay. comes back. Okay. I will read both of those things. I can be patient. I waited for this one. I waited for this one. I'll wait for the next two. Hafiza, it's so good to see you. But you know what? I suppose I should let you get back to your life. (laughs) Thank you so much for this. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Black Period. I'm Mark. And I'm Becky. And we're coming to you from our Barnes & Noble store in Cincinnati, Ohio. We've got a couple of great books to go over. Becky, if you don't mind, I'll jump right in. Thank you. So the book that I chose is A Powerhouse. This is a poetry collection called I Am the Rage by Dr. Martina McGowan. Woof, woof, woof. This is a collection that demands, it begs, it calls, it rages. It is like an uncorked bottle of centuries of injustice just spilled onto the page in a glorious way. Um, but it's also inspiring and hopeful and begets empathy in, in so many wonderful ways. Uh, Dr. McGowan writes from a place of blackness and womanhood and motherhood that feels so necessary and potent. And she created this collection in 2020 shortly after the deaths of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and so many Black youths who were taken well before their time. Uh, This, again, is a collection that burns and despairs, but it is also, I think, one of the most important books to come out in the last several years, and I think it should live on everybody's bookshelf. I think it's incredible, and I want everybody to read it. So please, please pick up I Am the Rage by Dr. Martina McGowan. Becky, do you have one for us? 
I do. Oh, that is such a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, I went in a different route. I thought more about our search for identity. Um, everyone needs to kind of figure out who they are in life. And so um, the book that I thought of is Catfish and Mandala by Andrew Pham. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, it's such a good book. It's kind of part travelogue, part biography. Uh, Andrew Pham is from Vietnam. He was born in Vietnam and, uh, and then was raised in California. He got to see Vietnam at the end of the war. And so he and his family escaped and uh, went through quite an ordeal before they finally then settled in San Jose. And he grew up and he was about 10 years old when all of that happened. So imagine kind of just being, you know, 10 and in a new country, you don't speak the language and there's a whole lot of culture shift that you need to adjust to. But he does okay. Uh, He grows up, he becomes an aerospace engineer and is doing all right. But then his sister commits suicide and it's a wake up call for him in kind of realizing he doesn't really fully understand or know who he is, uh, where he comes from. And so it spurs him to quit his job, sell his belongings, and take a bike trip. This is not just a normal bike trip. He basically travels um, the whole whole Pacific coast um, up through Vietnam and into Japan. Throughout that journey, he when he gets to Japan, he goes to Saigon, and it's nothing like he remembers from his childhood. It's a it's a shell of what it once was. And then in Vietnam, in connecting, trying to connect with with family there, he's mistaken for Japanese or, or Korean. And then even his own family is just like, you can't handle this bike journey, this this bike trip you're on. Only Westerners can do something like that. And he just, he never really fully fits in anywhere he goes, he he feels like. And then when he's, you know, even in the U.S., he's not fully American. It's a really good book because it it takes you on that journey that, you know, questioning, kind of delving into your own history. Who do you come from? Where do you come from? But then also then you're where you are now and how the environment, um, that history, your family, all of that combines uh, to give you your identity. And, um, and, you know, the end of the book, I don't know that, you know, Andrew fully has captured that or understands it, but he has a much better idea. It's just something I think everyone should read. It's fantastic. It's Catfish and Mandala by Andrew Pham. Oh, nice pick. Thank you. Thanks, you too. Thank you. (laughs) Well, that is all we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. I'm Becky. And you can follow our home store at BN Westchester. Thanks again, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Bye. Port Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.